Well, if you would please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. It is good. To, I, I just enjoy Sundays. I enjoy being together. It's a wonderful thing to be able to come together with the common bond of Jesus Christ and open His Word and, um, and listen to what He has to say. John chapter 5. Begin reading in verse 25. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gives or He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to exercise judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, uh, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb will hear His voice and will come forth, those who, do, who did good deeds to, the re- to a resurrection of life, those who commit evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank You for those that are here. thank You for the opportunity... Lord, to be together, what a joy it is to to hear Your Word. What a joy it is to have fellowship, to to sing praises to You. Lord, songs are just such a wonderful expression, Lord, of what's in our hearts. And the the way we feel, we just thank You so much for Your your grace in our life, for saving us, for giving us eternal life. Just amazing things. Things really too lofty for us to, to comprehend. And, but Lord, you, you are there. You are real. You are gracious and you are kind. And, and these things are happening. These things are, are a reality in our life. And we, we do praise you and thank you. Now Lord, I pray that you would bless our time together. As we open Your Word, I, I pray that it would be Your Word that, is, that goes forth, that we would have clarity, that we would have understanding, and that You would uh, just speak. And Lord, help us not to just, uh, these words to not just fall on deaf ears, but Lord, may we hear, may we, may we apply them to our life, may, may they just sink down deep and have great effect in our life. And we'll give you all the glory and all the honor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in John chapter 5, and we see that Jesus is in a situation. He has has, uh, healed a man on the Sabbath. Now you would think, well, what's the problem? No, that was a major problem against the rabbinic tradition and um, that he had done this, and it was a, it, he had broken the Sabbath. He wasn't supposed to do this. Uh, but then he also tells the man to pick up his pallet and walk, and he gets the man in trouble, and uh, things just begin to escalate. Problems just begin to escalate. Jesus is uh, getting himself into trouble here with the religious leaders. Now, 
Some people misunderstand this passage, and not only this passage, but just the teachings of Jesus in general. And they see Jesus as some kind of social progressive, that he is just attacking traditionalism and taking down the, the spiritual leaders of his day because they were just so traditional. And he was, he was promoting uh, progression, a societal evolution, if you will, and, and progression in society. And so he is, he is saying, uh, you know, death to this whole Sabbath thing, this whole rabbinic tradition, and, and he's progressing the culture of that day. Some people would see Jesus in that way, and, and really they kind of see him only as a man. But I tell you that that's not the point. Now, Jesus is attacking um, this. He, he is actually going on the offensive here. But he's not necessarily attacking the Sabbath day. We ha- hear very little about that. He just says that God is working, so I'm going to work. And that's really kind of... He justifies uh, his actions with those words. But he, he just he, he lays out some other things. He actually talks about who he is. And you, and you scratch your head and you say, well, how does this fit in? But it really fits in very easily. Because they are, uh, the answer to this whole Sabbath thing and this whole law thing is His authority. And Jesus is giving them His authority to be able to do these things is tied so closely with His identity that, uh, that it can't be separated. You can't separate the two. He is uh, the authority over the Sabbath and the rabbinical law because of who He is. He is God. That's just, that's just very nature. Now, so really at the, the, the point, Jesus is going right toward their heart. They need to believe this. They need to believe who Jesus is. And they, at this point, are rejecting Him. They're rejecting His message. They're rejecting His miracles. Anything that they can, um, any, any way that they can, they're explaining Him out, explaining Him away. And then they, they're, take, they're taking a stand. In fact, earlier last week, we saw that, that he is, uh, they just call Him a blasphemer and He deserves death and He deserves to be killed. And then actually, it was at that time that they begin to set things into motion. We've got to kill this man. He is wrong. He is not God like he claims. Now, early on in church history, there were those who uh, said that Jesus really was not God. Uh, one of the early ones was Arius. And this is the early 300s. That's a long time ago. But uh, he, Arius, came out and he said, no, he is to be exalted. He, he actually, uh, he, I believe he would uh, even teach that, that Jesus was the creator, but Jesus himself was created. He was created. He was not always existing. And um, so he's not really God. He was just a created being like the rest of, him, of us. But, but he, kind of, uh, he kind of elevated himself and probably God elevated him. And his term was that he was similar to God but not the same. 
He was similar in essence, similar in nature with God, but not the same as God, not one in essence. The church, of course, rose up and took a stand against this heresy. They labeled it as a heresy and said, no, Jesus was God. In fact, they said he was not similar like God. He was not just similar to God, but he was one in the same with God. He was he was the same nature, the same essence. And that was in the Council of Nicaea, and that was about 325 A.D. The church had to deal with that issue early on. Who was this man? And then today we even have uh, this same thinking going on, and you have many churches that, that believe that... And actually there's a couple of philosophies that are out there. Socianism... Socianism would say, yeah, Jesus was a good man. In fact, they would say he's, a, he's the best man that has ever lived, but yet he is created, but he was so good. He lived such a perfect life that God himself elevated him, kind of lifted him up and allowed him to share his nature. And so it similar natures, maybe the, the same nature as a divine nature, but it was because Jesus was so perfect. Perfect in his obedience to God. And therefore, he is to be worshipped. But there's something slightly wrong. He was, he was, again, he was just a man. He was a created being. And we would, we would come up and the church would recognize that and say, no, that's heresy. He was, he was God. You have Unitarianism. Very similar. They would say that Jesus was a good man. No, they would say he was a great man. A great man. And he had such a close re- communion with God, a close relationship with God, is that he is to be honored and he is to be emulated, that he is such a good example for the rest of us. In fact, uh, um, we should emulate him. We should, he is our model, but yet he is not to be worshipped because he really isn't God. And so you might run into those things. But when we look in the New Testament, we just see it from Matthew all the way to Revelation that this was God. Jesus was God. Names uh, were attributed to Christ that only deserved, uh, that, that only God could have. He was Lord. He was Master. He was called Savior. There was attributes that uh, Jesus had. He was omniscient. Christ said, no matter where you go, I'm going to be with you always. His, his omniscience, His om, uh, omnipresence, His immutability that He does not change. We see those things in, in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament. And we see even divine works, of course, attributed to Him. Um, he is uh, said by John himself that he created all things. And even we look in the New Testament and he sustains all things. And he can give eternal life. And we'll see that in this passage. But also, something that was attributed to Christ is that he forgives sin. That he can forgive sin. Now let's think about that. And that's one designation that really only God can give. Last week there was a... Uh, there was a beginning, a migration, if you will, of people. Um, you may have heard of Kamela uh, in India. It's a, um, it's a he, uh, Hindu festival. And it, starts, uh, it started last week and, it's, and it goes for 15 weeks. 
And there's estimated, and, uh, and this is the largest migration in history, but there's estimated this year there's going to be about 80 million people to migrate to the Ganges River. And uh, it's actually where the Ganges and the uh, Yamuna, or Yamuna River come together. 80 million people. Can you imagine? And last week uh, it caused a stir. There was uh, about 30 people that died on this uh, on this bus, and uh, and it was because of the, this migration. But they all go to this river, and the purpose of going to this river is for um, forgiveness of sin. At uh, at certain points, the stars line up. From what I understand, I don't know a whole lot about it. But if you go to this river at this particular time, and it actually happens every once every 12 years, then your sins will be forgiven. In fact, not just your sins, but the sins of your children. Um, And you'll be free from this cycle of death and rebirth that they consider uh, reincarnation. Now think about that. What drives those people to be forgiven of their sins? And why would you ask a river, why would you go to a river to cleanse you of sin? Who is our sin against? Our sin is against God. Who can forgive our sin? Not a river. Scripture tells us the reality of the situation is we're in offense to God. And only He then can release us, can forgive us of this sin. And Jesus claimed to forgive sin. He forgave sin. Now, we know, and and the New Testament makes clear, that only God can do that. Therefore, He is claiming to be God. Now, there's another problem. People would say that, uh, that it, it was actually his disciples, those who were after Jesus, those who followed Jesus, they're the ones that came along and gave this title of deity to Christ. He never really claimed to be God, but it was his disciples that came along after him and put all of these titles and all of these labels and kind of rewrote history and said that uh, he was God or he was Christ, he was the uh, Messiah, he was God. And so you ask yourself, we ask this question is, did, did Christ really claim or did Jesus really claim to be God? That becomes a significant question uh, in, the, in the scheme of things. Well, when we look again with the old or in the New Testament here, we see that Jesus claims to have authority over the law and over the Sabbath and even over the temple. He goes in and cleanses the temple, he has authority over those things, even the kingdom of heaven. Um, and we saw last week that he claimed to have equality with God. He claimed to be able to, in fact, if you look over John chapter 4 in verse. Um, In verse 10, Jesus said to her, If you would know the gift of God and who it was who who, uh, said to you, Give me a drink, you would ask Him and He would give you living water. What kind of claim is that? He is claiming to be able to satisfy the souls of man. He is claiming to be able to meet all of the human needs of of mankind. In fact, again, in 14, uh, if you're there... He says, uh, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him shall never thirst again. All of the human needs are going to be taken care of. All of these these emotional needs, they can be taken care of. The water that I will give him will 
be to him a well of water springing up for eternal life. Not just the length of life, but the quality of life as well. What a claim. Only God can do those things. He also claimed, listen, he also claimed to be the object of faith. In fact, the only object of faith. You put your faith and trust in me. You need to believe in me. That's, that's quite a claim. He, he accepted worship. You can go throughout the New Testament. And he, he did not reject worship that should have gone to God because he himself was God. He claimed to be the judge all of um, the right judge. Uh, or he claimed to have the, the right to judge mankind. He claimed to be able to forgive sin like we mentioned. And today we're going to see that he claims to be able to give life. But did he ever say, I am God? Did he ever stand up in the city of Jerusalem with the main street there and said, I am God, you better bow down and worship me now? I believe that in his humble way, that he had already, before he came down, he left that Godhood aside, and he only was uh, uh, dependent upon the Father's power to work in him, to, to, to have the attributes that he was able to have, the, the miracles and things that came from God himself. But he did make some claims, again, I believe, in a very humble way. If you turn over to John chapter 8, verse 56, John chapter 8, verse 56, just a quick little statement here that Jesus made. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am... Now, he's using a term that was only reserved for Yahweh in the Old Testament, and they knew clearly who he was talking about. Yahweh. They would not even pronounce that name. They would not write that name. In fact, they made up their own letters. It was a unique uh, spelling so that, so that they would not uh, take that name in vain in, in any situation. And so he's claiming. They know what he's claiming to do. Look what they do. Verse 59, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid. They knew exactly his claim. They were going to stone him right there because that was blaspheming. He was calling himself God. Clear uh, example there. Look at chapter 10, verse 30. There's another, just a quick little phrase that Christ throws out. John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, now this is Jesus talking again. He says, I and the Father are one. Now that's a good way to stir up the crowd if they're Jewish. He says, I and the Father are one. Now they got the message. They understood what his claim was. And what did they do? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. We've got to, we've got to take care of this guy. He is blaspheming. He is claiming to be God. They got the message. Let me show you one more. And this was a, a crucial one in the context here. Matthew chapter 26. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 26 and verse 64. The context being uh, Jesus was in the... Um, uh, he was before uh, the Jewish leaders and uh, he was on trial. On trial for his life. Now, if this was just a misunderstanding... I think Jesus could have gotten off. 
And he could have just apologized, guys, I'm, I'm sorry, I think you've, I think you've misunderstood. Uh, I'm not really God. I, I don't know what you understood to, to be, my, my claims to be. But he doesn't say that. Here's what he says. And Jesus said in verse 64, says, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. You, you, you're right, guys. You, you said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, I'll say it again. But again, he, he puts it in such humble terms. Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Right hand of power? Who is that? Well, that's God Himself. And you're going to be at His right hand. You're going to be claiming equality with God, that you're going to reign the universe with Him? In fact, He says, uh, coming on uh, the clouds of heaven. What did they do? What was their response again? Then the high priest tore their robes and said, He is blaspheming. What further need do we have of a witness? We don't even need a witness. You guys are all now witnesses. He's blaspheming and you see it. Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. It was clear Jesus was claiming to be God in a very humble way. In a, in a, in, in the, the, his favorite term was just the Son of Man, not necessarily the Son of God. He would refer to himself every once in a while in that, but he was just the Son of Man. He had let aside, set aside that, 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 uh, that glory that he just, he had before, and he, he had laid that aside, and he came, and he was a man. Now listen, what's the, what's the point there? For one thing, number one, there is no misunderstanding. Jesus was clear. They knew what he was claiming to be. They knew that he was claiming to be God. In three different occasions, they, had, they tried to kill him. In fact, the last one, they did kill him. And it was not a misunderstanding. They killed him for the right reason. They killed him because he was blaspheming. And that's what, uh, that's what uh, he was doing. Except he really was God. Now, there's another point here. Even in Jesus' day, even when Jesus was alive, He was pointing to the evidence. He was wanting them to hear. Hear my voice. Hear my words. Look at the works that I'm doing. He, He would point to the evidence. What do you see? He is wanting them, even on this in this day, to live by faith. And Christ, and I believe He believed it, Christ said, it is better to... um, Better to believe, or, or better to have, um, just to believe and exercise that faith than to actually see it and believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He's wanting them to exercise faith in who He is. That's, that's what's going on. And that's what we see here. Jesus is explaining who He is in John chapter 5. And He's explaining His authority. He's explaining His uh, abilities are equal with God. And He's giving me all of these evidence. And they just need to believe it. That's the whole point. And He defends His authority. And He's defining Himself as God in such a humble way that only the Son of Man really could do. But yet He was... Claiming to be God. Claiming to be God. And we see another one of those claims. And here's what I want you to see today. Here's the truth. Here's the point. One of the strongest claims of Christ um, concerning His deity is His ability to give life. 
His ability to give life is, is some of the strongest evidence, some of the strongest claims of his deity. And that's what we'll see in this passage. The question that we'll ask just quickly is what, uh, what evidence is there that Jesus can give life? What kind of evidence? Well, Jesus gives us some of that here. In this passage, we'll see uh, this power, this resurrection power that Jesus has. And we'll, I want you to notice, too, that this power resides in His words. It comes out of His mouth, what He says. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. What is he talking about there? Well, he has started his ministry. People are beginning to hear his voice. And things are beginning to happen, but not yet. It hasn't come to full fruition yet. In fact, it won't until uh, till Pentecost. The Jews had to reject Christ. And once they would reject Christ, the church would start. And, and he is pointing to that time. But even before that time, some of those, men, those people were alive that, at that time. And they were beginning to hear his voice. And he says, an hour is coming. And now is. Now how can that be? Well, it just it is. That's the way Christ taught. It's, it's now. It's, it's happening now. But yet it's going to happen more completely in the future. Now listen to this. It says, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, does anything strike you as strange at, at that point? How can dead people hear? They can't. They can't. That's the point. <clears throat> now, in this passage here, he talks about uh, the dead hearing the Son of God, in this first part, verses 25 and 26. But then he goes down, and in contrast to spiritual death, and I think that's what he's talking about, 25 and 26, he contrasts that with physical death in verses 28 and 29. Because he talks about those who were in the tomb. He gets very specific. Those who are physically dead, those who are in the tomb, they will come forth. And he's contrasting spiritual death with physical death in this passage. Now... What does that mean? Well, in John chapter 10, you're, you're in John, turn to 1010 just real quick. He said that, uh, it says that Jesus came, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. He says, I came, I came that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. Here's the deal. What do you have if you don't have life? You have death. If you need life, that's a good indication that you're dead. And Jesus said, I come to give life. So you are spiritually dead. We were spiritually dead before, before Christ, before Christ began to work in our life, even you know, before He comes. And He came to give life. He is a life giver. In fact, He goes on to say, for just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave life to the son, uh, son also to have life in himself. What is he talking about there? He laid aside, remember, his godhood, and he comes to earth and he's completely dependent upon his heavenly Father to, for all of his attributes. And the Father says, I want you to have the ability to give life. So Son has ability to give life. Now, let's go back. What, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? What is that like? 
How can we be spiritually dead? What does that look like? Well, in John 15, you don't have to turn there, but you know the story. It was the, the story of the prodigal son. The son goes off. And uh, when he, the son comes back, the father says, one thing that the father says to the son, he says, that son was dead and now is alive. And you know what? That son's a picture of us and the father. We are dead spiritually to our heavenly father. And we read in the Old Testament that it is sin that has separated us. And that's what death is, a separation. We are separated from our Heavenly Father because of sin. We're separated. We are death to the Father. We have death to the Father. We're not alive to Him. That means spiritually dead. Let me go back. There's one thing that's in common with dead people, dead things is just inability and that's a word that you need to to understand completely unable unable to do anything dead people they lie there that's about all they can do they cannot respond you can speak but they don't hear you can poke they don't respond there's just no response they are unable to do so Unable to do so. So when we're talking about spiritual death, we are talking about people who are unable to do certain things. Unable to live in the Spirit. In fact, a characteristic of that is that we we are dead to the Father. We're dead to the Father. If you're spiritually dead, you're dead to the Father. The life giver, you don't have that connection. Let me give you another one. James chapter, well, James chapter 7... uh, Chapter 2, verse 17, talks about being dead in faith. When we are spiritually dead, we try to exercise faith, but it's dead faith. It's faith that does not work. It does not accomplish anything. Dead faith. Spiritually dead people have dead faith. James goes on to talk about dead works. And uh, in Hebrews, we see that same thing. This idea of just being dead. to We cannot do anything good. Spiritually dead people. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. You've heard that statement before. What is that dead to? That's dead to righteousness. We cannot do righteous acts. We are dead to those. They are not recognized by our Father. We can do things, but they are as though we are not doing them because they're, they're for naught. They're in vain. They're for no reason. They, they have no effect on our spiritual condition at all. And you remember the story that Jesus, uh, when someone says, Oh, I'll follow you. I'll be your disciple. And uh, Jesus, uh, and he said, Well, let me go back and bury my father. Let, my father's not dead yet. Let me go and take care of him and then I'll follow you. And Jesus said, Let the dead bury the dead. You remember that verse? Let the, the, the spiritually dead bury the physically dead in Matthew eight twenty two. So there is this category of being dead spiritually. Uh, It's actually salvation is a picture of spiritual life. Now, I want you to turn to uh, a couple passages, though. Romans chapter 8, verse 10, just a a quick verse here. You need to understand this. This is is important. Romans chapter 8, verse 10 says, If Christ is in you, if you've believed in Christ and you are now in Christ and Christ is in you, you are following Him and His words are in you, though the body is dead because of sin, 
this body is decaying and, and, and going the way of the world, just all flesh will die. Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Because there's life there. Because of righteousness now there. There's life. But before we were just dead. You can look at verse 13. For if you, were, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. That's that, that's, if you're alive to the flesh, then you're dead spiritually, then you need to, to die to the flesh and live to Christ, live spiritually. But if you are by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the, flesh, uh, deeds of the body and you will live. Listen, if you are in the habit, if there's something that has changed in your life and you are now doing these good works and you're putting these bad works um, aside and, uh, and this living to the flesh aside and you are living to God, then there's some change that has taken place in your life. There's spiritual life there. Now turn over a few uh, chapters to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. And this will, this will pull things together a little bit more. And this picture and this understanding of what it means to be spiritually dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received... Okay, so we're dead. We're, we're spiritually dead. And, and Christ takes the initiative and, and He gives us something... He says, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. He's given us the Spirit. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by spiritual, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. This is this realm of the Spirit. And we have the Holy Spirit now living in us. And we can understand spiritual things. But now look at verse 14. But, the, but a natural man, but those who are still spiritually dead and just are living in nature, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. There's this whole spiritual realm that they are not aware of, and when you become a Christian, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are alive now to spiritual things. Spiritual things. Before, you were dead to spiritual things. There's nothing you can do. You were unable to respond to anything spiritual. You could not experience spiritual things. And according to this verse, you couldn't really even know them because they're spiritually appraised. Well, you say, well, I can read the Bible. Yeah, you might know the words. But having anything spiritual there, there's, it's just not going to happen. You are spiritually dead. You say, well, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Go back to John chapter 5. Listen, it is Christ. It is Christ that gives spiritual life. And if you don't have spiritual life, I pray, it is my plea to you, you will find life in Christ. You must put your faith and trust in Him. And you cry out to Him. Because life resides in Christ. And it's in His words. He says, the dead will hear. You say, well, how does that happen? I don't know how that happens, but it happens. It happened with Lazarus. It happened with other people who were dead and they heard the voice of Christ. Lazarus, he said, come forth. 
And a dead person heard him. How does that work? I don't know. It has to be the power of Christ. When you are spiritually dead, if you are spiritually dead and you hear this voice of Christ, this yearning, Christ calling you, you uh, He's wanting you, He's given you spiritual life and He wants you then to, to respond to that. And, and you, just, you just respond. You just begin to obey. You just begin to follow. You just begin to live spiritually. Because you hear, He says, you will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live It's an amazing thought. They will hear and live. Now, obviously, I'm not going to get to uh, the second point. So let's just kind of wrap this up. John chapter 17. I want you to see this. I'm going to follow this thought one, one step further. John chapter 17, verse 20. John 17, verse 20. Now, Christ knew this. Christ knew what was going to happen. He, he knew how this was going to play out and how this was going to work. And he's praying for his disciples. This was before his, his death and he's praying, Lord, he says, I pray for them. Keep them. And then he says this in verse 21, or I'm sorry, verse 20, John chapter 17. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. That's his immediate disciples, those who were right there with him, whom he was praying for. But, he says, for those also who believe in me through their what? Through their words. Through their words. Does that mean we have the ability to give spiritual life? Well, you know what? If we are, if we're proclaiming Christ to a dead world, then yes. Yes, we do. It's not ours. It's just Christ. He's, he's working in us. It's, it's His work and it's His doing. It's His words. It's His message. And we just proclaim it. And somehow it gives life to a dead world. You say, how does that happen? I don't know. But it does. And let me, let me tell you this that it gives some of the greatest evidence of the deity of Christ ever. Because I can stand up here and say, I once was dead, but now I am alive because the name of Christ, because I believed in this word, I believed in this message, and I'm alive spiritually. And that is plenty evidence for me that this man is who he claims to be. That this man has authority. That this, this man has a life living in him. Ready to just explode. And those who, who believe in him and, and who are in Christ, well, they have life. They have eternal life. That's an amazing picture. It's an amazing thought to me. I don't quite understand it. But I, I live by faith. I live by faith in this word. That's what God says. That's what Christ said. And so I'm going to, I'm going to believe in his words. And, and those disciples, they told the world around them. And someone from that generation told the next generation. And for 2,000 years, it, it went on and on and on. And someone eventually told me, my father, and I believed. And, and I've just put my faith in this word If you are here and have never done that, I beg of you, I plead with you, hear the voice of Christ. Put your faith in Him. You say, how does it work? I don't know. You just cry out to the Lord. 
You recognize your sinfulness. You recognize who you are and who He is. And just respond. Respond to that. Number two, here's just by application. How would, uh, how would you describe your spiritual life? Um, is it vibrant? Or can you even call it life? Or are you just on a slab and every once in a while we see a, a, a wiggle in the eyes or something like that? Or, or do we have a twitch in the arms or something? Is, is it just weakness? Is it apathetic? Or are you, are you living? Are you living the spiritual life? It's not just the length of life, it's the quality of life. And Jesus said, I come that they may have life. He's come to give life right here and right now. Spiritual life. Now, next week we'll look at the, the, the physical life as well, but just, just ponder on that question. What are you doing? Where are you spiritually? What's God doing in your heart, in your mind, in your life? Are you weak and anemic because you're, you don't have any spiritual substance for your, your physical life? Do you pray? Is that relationship with you between you and God, the giver of life, is that healthy? Is that uh, there and existent? Or is, it, or is it dead? You know, we don't have to go to a river in India to get our sins forgiven. We can go to Christ and He can forgive sins. And it's only through Him that we get eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank You for these precious truths. Lord, just thank You for giving eternal life, giving us life, spiritual life, Lord. Thank You for giving us the Holy Spirit who gives us insight to this, this spiritual world that we, we, were, we were dead to and we don't know anything about. And all of a sudden, we are, we're now alive to this whole world and, and it's confusing. And Lord, we, we just want to live for You. And, and Lord, we, we may be shaky at times. We, we may be apathetic. We may be even weak spiritually. But Lord, we know that You are kind and You are gracious to give life and we know that You can sustain our life as well. And Lord, we recognize that we're completely dependent upon You. It's, it's a miracle. It's nothing of our own doing. We just heard a voice and we come forth. Lord, sustain us. Sustain us with Your grace. May we take that next step of obedience. May we just continue to obey and follow You and do what You have us to do. Lord, may we have a church filled with spiritual life, with vitality that the world sees and the world wants, the world desires. And and Lord, I pray that You would, even in this community, use us to give life through Your Word, as we dispense Your Word, as we just give it out, I pray that the Word would just work in people's hearts and minds and, and somehow they come forth. I pray that You would use us in that way. And we thank You and praise You. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.